chapter 31, starting at verse 30. And Moses spake in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall not drop as the rain, my speech shall not distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. <clears throat> because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth without iniquity, just and right is he. They have corrupted themselves in their spot, is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath brought thee, bought thee? Hath not he made thee and established thee? I would write a song and teach it to you this morning that predicted in detail the future events that would occur to this congregation, including a number of foolish acts that you would do, and then you proceeded to carry them out in years to come, including the foolish acts. That would be a very unique thing. But this is exactly what took place in Israel close to the death of Moses. God had Moses write a song under God's guidance. <clears throat> this song predicted in some detail the whole history of the Israelite nation, from birth to apostasy to punishment and to final restoration in the sight of God. Because of the amazing sweep of uh, this prophecy, it's sometimes been called the key to all prophecy. We may see a little bit of what is meant by that as we go through this song. <clears throat> God, in telling Moses to write this song, says that it shall be a witness against Israel for him. In the 19th verse of the 31st chapter, Now therefore write ye this song for you, and teach it the children of Israel put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. I recall when uh, I was a young man, on one occasion it was snowing and uh, I had just gotten my driver's license. I had a date and I asked my dad to, uh, if I could have the car. He said, no, you will have a wreck. I said, no, I will not. He said, yes, you will. I said, no, I will not. I went out and had a wreck. Uh, the only thing that could have added to my sense of guilt would have been had he made me memorize what he said about my having a wreck and uh, repeat it a number of times over to myself and then go and have the wreck. That's exactly what God has in mind here in terms of a witness against them. He warns them of their apostasy, has them sing this song and teach it to their children concerning it and what he will do when they apostatize and uh, it's designed to convict them of their guilt 
designed to prevent them from doing this. And if when in the, they do do it, to lead them to return to him in repentance. It's designed to soften their hearts, to bring forth fruit. In the 32nd chapter, uh, <clears throat> Moses, in giving this, calls it doctrine. And he says in the second verse of the 32nd chapter, My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. He says, it's my hope that this song will soften your hearts and bring forth fruit unto God. Looking at the song and seeking exposition of it, we find first the brings forward the attributes of God. In the third verse, Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. We have this ascription of greatness to God. Not that we can make God any greater than he is, but we, while we cannot add to his greatness, we can acknowledge his greatness and we can proclaim his greatness. He uses a title for God. He refers to him as the rock. In verse 4, he is the rock. That's what he is in himself, unchangeable, immutable. That's what he will be to his people. He will be a refuge. He will be a foundation to all those that put their trust in him. He is the rock. And then he goes on to describe his attributes. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. All his ways are right. A God of truth and without iniquity. He does no sin. Just and right is he. Here is Moses' ascription to God, his description of God's attributes. Just and right is he. All of his ways are judgment. Again, he uh, in speaking of his justice, Moses had experienced God's justness in following through with his promises and in following through with his threatenings. The brightest display anywhere in the universe of God's justice and God's holiness and all of his attributes is the cross of Jesus Christ. Nowhere in the universe is the justice of God, the mercy and love of God. Nowhere are these proclaimed as in the cross of Jesus Christ. The heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, his dealings with his people show it forth. But again, more than anywhere else, when we see God's Son take our guilt upon himself, pay for it in full, we understand something of the fantastic justice of God. He would not overlook sin. The only way that he could pardon it was for someone else to come and bear it in full, and the only person who could was his own son. And in justice he required the death of the son before he could pardon sin. In love he was willing to give his son to come and die for our sin. The attributes of God uh, reached their highest display at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
He speaks then of the apostasy of Israel. In verse 5, they have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. He speaks of their perverseness. They have corrupted themselves. The guilt of it is all on them. Uh, Certainly they were tempted in many ways by many things, but the guilt was theirs. They have corrupted themselves. Their parentage, their spot, is not the spot of his children. All God's people have spots. We have our blemishes, we have our sins. But our sins, if we're Christians, are not like the sins of those who are not his children. Our sins are our remaining infirmities that we fight against and that we hate. But the sins of those who are not God's people are the sins of those that love their sin, that go into it headlong, that serve it, that indulge it. God's people are different. Over in 1 John in the New Testament it's put like this, Whosoever is born of God doth not practice sin, for God's seed remains in him, and he cannot practice sin. He will slip in sin, but he will not live in sin. And it says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. This distinction, those who practice it versus those who slip in it and hate it and get up and go on again in doing his will, distinguishes who is our parent. The description of Israel is followed by an expostulation with Israel concerning their foolishness. Verse 6, Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Utter folly what you're doing as he predicts their apostasy. They're foolish because of all that God has done for them. His fatherhood. Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Speaking of his redemption of them out of bondage in uh, Egypt. Hath he not made thee and established thee? Then he goes on into a lengthy description of God's fatherhood. All that he had done for them. From the birth of the nation and the marking out of the land of Canaan. Choosing the size, the boundaries of the land of Canaan to fit the size of the nation that he would bring into it. Bestowing his choice upon them. The Lord's portion is his people. He made them his portion. Chose them above all nations of the earth. Again, uh, speaking of his having kept them as the apple, the pupil of his eye. Bearing them on eagle's wings, like an, like an eagle trains her young and keeps her wings under them as she teaches them how to fly. God bore his people on eagle's wings. He's been a father to you, says Moses. Do you thus requite him? Are you so foolish? And then he goes on to speak of the forsaking of God that would come. In verse 15, But Yeshuron waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. We have here predicted the apostasy, the soon apostasy, 
of Israel from God. Already the disposition was there, and this disposition would burst forth in a forsaking of God. Notice when it happens. Yeshuron, meaning God's beloved in term of endearment, waxed fat. God blessed him. He was strong. He conquered other nations. He was brought into a land of milk and honey. He waxed fat. He became self-confident, lazy, at ease, and kicked, rebelled against God. How many times have I as a pastor seen members of my own congregation start off very humbly with the Lord, earnestly seeking his blessing on their family, on his family and on his business, seeking to serve the Lord. And the Lord blessed him, and he waxed fat and forgot the Lord, and turned and truly forsook the Lord. Oh, what danger it is to wax fat, to be rich. If we understood one iota of what the Bible says about the danger of riches, not a one of us would want to be rich. We would pray with anger, God, give me not riches. Their forsaking of God that would soon come. All of this, <clears throat> a description of their apostasy. Their forsaking would take the form of idolatry. This was the great sin of Israel. In verse 16, they provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils, not to God. To gods whom they knew not to new gods that came newly up, whom their fathers feared not. Idolatry. Is this not the sin of our people? Do we not set up idols in our hearts? Do we not worship the same things that non-Christians worship? Do we not strive after material gain and make it our security? Do we not seek after <clears throat> popularity and power, beauty, all of these strange gods that non-Christians worship, and don't we <clears throat> uh, seek after education as, in a way, idolatrously? Aren't we more concerned about a son going to a college where he will earn a position that would <clears throat> enable him to get a good job than we are concerned that he be educated in the things of Christ? Don't we pay more attention to whether he does his homework at school than whether he gets his Sunday school lesson? Isn't it true that we have false idols that we set up, every one of us? Doesn't the average lady present this morning spend more time taking care of her figure and face than she does her soul? Doesn't the average man devote far more energy to the things of of his material well-being and his children's material well-being than he does to his spiritual well-being and their spiritual well-being. Idolatry. It was thus that they forsook God, that they apostatized. We've seen the attributes of God. We've seen the apostasy of Israel. There could only be then the anger of God the abhorrence of God at his people. It says in the 19th verse, And when the Lord saw it, he abhorred them because of the provoking of his sons and of his daughters. They provoked him. 
the expression of this anger. In verse 20 he said, I will hide my face from them, and I will see what their end shall be. He would remove his protection, and then he would see how well they fared, how strong they were. Uh, he would replace them as his people. In verse 21, they have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Here we have the prediction that the time would come when the nation of Israel would be rejected as the people of God and would be replaced by people that had been no people. Here we have a very clear prediction of the calling of the Gentiles, of the taking of the kingdom of God from the nation of Israel and giving it unto a nation bringing forth the fruit thereof. In the New Testament, in Romans uh, chapter 10, Paul applies this <clears throat> prediction to the conversion of the Gentiles. And again, he speaks of raining punishment upon him as a further expression of his anger. As he says in verse 23, I will heap mischiefs upon them. I will spend mine arrows upon them. They shall be burnt with hunger and devoured with burning heat and with bitter destruction. And verse 25, the sword without and terror within shall destroy both the young man and the virgin, the suckling also with the man of gray hairs, child and parent. Particularly, his reigning of punishments would take the form of other nations conquering them, scattering them throughout other nations. This is a prediction of the state that they have been in since the rejection of Jesus Christ until very recently. Why would he do this? Because in verse 20b he says, They are a forward generation, children in whom is no faith. No repentance, no faith. A man cannot walk with God unless he is repentant. And unless he has faith, we know very clearly today that faith means faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Faith in God to forgive us through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And true repentance, turning from our forward, crooked, perverse ways and surrendering our lives to him. Only those who are characterized by humility and faith can be in the favor of God. There's a limitation to his anger as well as the expression of his anger. The limitation has to do with God's fear of the enemy. That's an unusual phrase that we find here. In verse 26, I said I would scatter them into corners. I would make the remembrance of them to cease from among men. Were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy? God fearing the wrath of the enemy? lest their adversaries should behave themselves strangely, and lest they should say, Our hand is high, and the Lord hath not done all this. His fear was the fear that Moses had urged when on a previous occasion God was mindful to destroy the nation of Israel, and Moses had said, God, God, 
what will the Egyptians say? They will say, you, were, you brought them out to destroy them, and you were not able to bring them into the land. It would be a blot on your name, the honor of it, on the face of the earth. God says, because those nations that I used to punish them, were I to allow them to make a full end of my people as I'm mindful to do, then they would say that their own hand had done it and that in getting victory over Israel they had defeated the God of Israel. For the honor of my namesake I will not make a full end, but I will show mercy to them. The enemy should have known better, as he says in verse 28, they are a nation void of counsel, neither is there any understanding in them, or that they were wise, that they would understand this, that they would consider their latter end. How should one chase a thousand, and two put ten thousand to flight, except their rockets sold them, and the Lord had shut them up? The enemy should have known better because their weakness <clears throat> compared to uh, the strength of God's people normally. Normally speaking, God's people are absolutely invincible. Normally speaking, one of them puts 10,000 of the enemies to flight. They can stand under anything. And when suddenly the reverse is true, where the enemy can overcome God's people, it can only have one solution. God's people have forsaken God, and God has turned his back on his people and delivered them up. God himself would fight against them. His enemies ought to understand that. They should understand it because they themselves acknowledge that their rock is not as the rock of God's people. In verse 31, For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. Time and time again in Scripture we find where the very enemies of God have to acknowledge his power. Nebuchadnezzar, who worshipped strange gods, suddenly is reduced to the level of a beast. And when he finally is recovered by God, he acknowledges that God is the only true God in all of the earth. And when he throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace, and there God protects him, he has to acknowledge that he is the great God, and no God can save like him. Time and again in Scripture this is true, and is it not true in our own day? Do not the very non-Christians that live around you acknowledge that you have a power in your life to take adverse circumstances that they know nothing of? Is it not true that we see them utterly fall apart in time of calamity when many a Christian will simply bow his head, thank the Lord for the calamity, and trust the Lord, and go on? Even our enemies have to acknowledge this. There is a limitation to his anger, although there would be the expression of his anger. Finally, there will be a cessation of God's anger. In the 34th verse, he speaks of his readiness in time to deal with their enemies, that he is used as the rod of his anger. In verse 34, is not this laid up in store with me and sealed up among my treasures? To me belongeth vengeance, 
and recompense. The way that's put in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Their foot shall slide in due time. While I use non-Christians to punish my own people, says God, the time will come when their foot shall slide, when I will deal with those that I use to deal with my people. Because I keep close by me the record of all of their iniquities laid up in store. And it's ready, this wrath that they've treasured up against the day of wrath is ready to fall on their heads. And in an appointed time, their foot shall slide. No matter how secure they may feel themselves to be, no matter how much they may have overcome my people and may boast of their strength, their foot shall slide. As he says, <clears throat> For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. The Lord <clears throat> will is ready to deal with the enemies of his people, and he will repent of his dealings with his people. As he says in the 36th verse, For the Lord will judge his people, he will plead for his people against their enemies, and repent himself for his servants. The time will come when there will be a cessation of his anger, and he will change his way of dealing with his servants. He will restore them to his favor, and he will bless them. You have a prediction here of the restoration of Israel. And it'll be given in more detail in a moment. But notice when the time comes in dealing with them and with you and with me that his anger ceases. Notice when. He says, when he seeth that their power is gone. When he sees that his people are utterly helpless. When he sees that those who have kicked against him now cry out to him. Who said the Lord helps those who help themselves? Not the Bible. My Bible says God helps the helpless. But when you come to an end of yourself, man's extremity is God's opportunity. When you face up to the fact that all of your choices are utter folly, that you have no strength to change your own ways, and that you cannot deliver yourself from the bands that bind you to sin, that you cannot deliver yourselves from the calamities that have come upon you, and you turn to God, that's when God will hear that's when you will find his mercy. As long as you think that you can make this way, your way through this world without his help, apart his help, then God will let you try. But the day that you say, God, I need you, I cannot do it on my own, I cannot raise these children, I cannot run this business, I cannot make it to heaven, I must have you as my Lord and Savior, that day you will find him. He goes on to speak of how 
He will bless them at this time. It will be with appropriate observations. When he comes to your help and to their help, he will make some appropriate observations. In verse 37, And he shall say, Where are their gods, their rock in whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices? When all of the false gods that you've lived for fail you, when your insurance ceases to insure you, when your beauty leaves you, when those people in whom you trusted forsake you, then God will draw nigh and he will say, Where are all of those gods that you trusted in? He'll urge that home to you as he begins to help you. And then again, he will make some observations <clears throat> not only concerning the inability of your no-gods, but the sovereignty of himself, the true God. See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God with me. There's no other God. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. God says he is the sole supremacy of this universe. There's no God with him. Again, he says that he is absolutely sovereign, that he has a universal agency. He controls all things. Everything comes from his hand. If it be calamity, shall there be evil in the city, and the Lord hath not done it? Asked Amos. I wound, and I heal. If you get well, if you recover, that too is from God. If you're in trouble and you're saved out of it, it doesn't matter if someone helped you. Ultimately, it was from God. I kill and I make alive. God, the alone controller of all things. His absolute sovereignty. We had an unusual testimony to that effect at our men's luncheon. We had a speaker who was a JARS pilot, a Wycliffe pilot, jungle aviation pilot. He told us how it happened that he's a JARS pilot. He was a SAC pilot, a B-47 pilot, some ten-odd years ago. And over Little Rock, Arkansas, Six o'clock one morning, his B-47 exploded in midair. Everyone killed except him, and him set on fire, a living flame. As he sat in the plane and waited to die, screaming, unable to think, the next thing he knew, he was in the air, floating down. Had no idea how he got there. Looked down, his ripcord hadn't been pulled. He thanked God for this amazing deliverance and then looked up only to discover that his parachute was shredded to bits, that a fourth of it was missing, that he was plummeting to the earth. He thought, what, what an ironic thing 
to be saved out of that fiery inferno only to die as I plummet to the earth. He began to pray, God, somehow break my fall. A lady in Little Rock, Arkansas, heard the explosion. She rushed outside of her house. She looked up. She saw the flaming inferno, the wing bits, the extremely extreme situation. She saw this man plummeting to the earth. She, too, realized he would be killed. She began to pray, God, break that man's fall. To her amazement, he landed in her backyard, around behind her garage, where there was pavement. She ran around there to see him spattered on the pavement. She knew he would be. He was standing up. She had two trees in her backyard that bordered on this concrete driveway. The trees were the exact height of the parachute. The parachute settled over the two trees with him exactly in between. Had he hit either tree, he'd have been killed. The trees were just such a height that he hit, they bent a little to let him make a normal fall, then jerked him back upright, exactly on his feet. God wounds, God heals, God kills, God makes alive, God controls all things. I am God. There is no God with me. He alone can deliver, and he can deliver. And he does amazing things like this, time and again, for his people. The assurance of victory to his people is the note that this song ends on. In verse 43, Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries, and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. This call for rejoicing. You notice who is to rejoice? Rejoice, O ye nations. Again, in Romans, this is translated, Rejoice, O ye Gentiles. He says, look, in the long run, God's going to bring the Jewish people back to himself. And the Gentiles who believe in him will also be a part of this blessed people. Rejoice, O ye Gentiles, and you, with you his people, with the Jewish people, because he will avenge the blood of his servants, and he will render vengeance to his adversaries, and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. In the... 30th chapter, and in the 4th through the 6th verses, we have a very direct prophecy of the recovery of Israel one day. If any of thine be driven out unto the uttermost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. For years Christian writers have been saying the day would come when God would take his scattered people, scattered throughout this universe, and bring them back into his land. You can read books written two, three, four, five hundred years ago that predicted this, as men commented on passages like this in the Bible. And in our day, we've seen it happen. They are back in the land. They have not yet turned to him. They will turn to him. The nation of Israel will be restored to the favor of God. 
the Gentiles together with the Jews who have become Christians will be blessed and will rejoice together and will be victorious together over their enemies. Such is the heritage of the saints of the Lord. Beloved, these are solemn things. Moses wrote this as a witness to Israel. And he tells them at the close of this, uh, he says <clears throat> again in chapter 32 and verse <clears throat> 45, Moses made an end of speaking all these words to Israel, and he said unto them, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe to do all the words of this law. For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. This is not a trifling matter. Learning this, living by it, he says, We're not saved by our law-keeping, we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. He alone saves. But when we have put our trust in him, we must follow him fully. This is our life. We must teach these things to our children after us. This is their life. This is what life's all about. If this song was a witness to the children of Israel, how much more is this entire Bible a witness to you and me? We know far more than they knew. We have a much clearer insight into the things of God. And if God was a father to them in the way he had carried their nation, how much more is he a father to us now that he has sent his son? And if we turn our backs on God in the face of all that we know and all that he's done for us, how can he forbear to utterly wipe us out, to remove us clean off the face of the earth and to let his wrath consume to the lowest hell? If we think they were foolish, how much more foolish are we if we go knowingly against his will continually? To the heedless, this is a message of horror, utter horror. The calamities he rained on them are nothing compared to the calamities he'll rain on us. If men died without mercy under Moses' law, of how much sore a punishment suppose ye shall they be thought worthy who have trodden underfoot the Son of God and done despite under the Spirit of grace. It's a message of horror to those who are heedless. It's a message of help to those who acknowledge that they're helpless. If you today say, God, I cannot make my way through this world without you, and I have None on earth save you and none in heaven save you. You alone I will serve. I give myself to you. It's a message of help. I care not how numerous your sins may be. I care not how strong a grip they may have on you. I care not what you've done or what you've gripped by. If you will turn in a helpless way today and say, Oh God, I cannot help myself. I cast myself on your son for mercy. I trust you. I surrender to you. This very day you will receive his amazing help. It's a message of hope to those who've heard. We are his people. Jew and Gentile together who trust in Jesus Christ will be victorious over all of our enemies. It is sure and certain. Their foot shall slide in due time, but we will be upheld. Let us pray. Almighty God, we bless thee for this witness song.
Oh God, let the things that we have learned from your scripture and the songs that we've learned, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let these things be a witness to us, to woo us from folly, to win us to following you with all of our heart. And oh God, may there be some here right now who would acknowledge their helplessness to you just right now, that would say in their heart, O oh God, thou to whom alone belongs help, I acknowledge my helplessness, and I acknowledge that you alone are the true God, and I surrender to you, I trust in you, I abhor all of my false gods, and turn from them. Amen.